Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. First Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you for though I absent in body I am present in spirit and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. So this message is going to be discussing the right judgment of Jesus Christ. That is, the judgments of Jesus are right. In Revelation, we hear a group of people surrounding the throne singing to the Lord that all of his judgments are righteous and true altogether. And so this flies against most of the modern understanding of what judgment is. If you ever rebuke anyone for anything, especially in public, the first comment that you'll hear as kind of a clap back or a talk back is, judge not lest ye be judged. And boy, is that correct. Judge not lest you be judged. But unfortunately, Jesus continues to speak after that, and he says, judge with right judgment, therefore. (laughs) People will often bring up, well, Jesus said, first remove the speck. Well, go on and continue the verse. He says, remove the speck, then you can help your brother with the log. He doesn't say, go home and deal with the speck and forget about the brother's log. First deal with the speck, then you can help your brother. Ye who are caught in a trespass, or uh, if anyone is caught in a trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one, looking unto yourselves, lest you also be tempted. So the scriptures command us to exhibit the sort of judgment that Jesus himself judges. People have this vain notion of Jesus, whom they've made in their own image. They say Jesus is all-loving. He would never condemn anyone. What would Jesus do in response to the situation? And a a reminder would be he might sit down for a few minutes and form a cord of whips and then start flipping tables. That's that's in the realm of possibility of Jesus' response to a situation. So I I use this humor to kind of, you know, disarm the tension here, but the point is that Jesus really will judge between sheep and goats on the last day. He absolutely will. It's part of who he is in his nature and character. It's the reason God loves him. It's part of the reason. That is, the father loves the son because the son's willing to do the father's will. And because he did the father's will, Peter says in Acts 2, therefore God's made it known to everybody that he's going to, you know, that he's raised Jesus from the dead. Later on in the book of Acts, he reiterates the same idea. And he's that the proof that God gave of the resurrection was to lead that people would know that he will judge the world through this same Jesus that he raised from the dead. And so just at the onset, I want to help you understand that the world system and the the doctrines, uh, unwritten as they are, that exist in the world today against the judgments of God abound and have, uh, have gained even a strong hearing in the church. God has judgments against evil. It is right that he judges evil. And so today I want to look at Jesus's judgments against evil as they're shown to us in briefly in Matthew 18. And then I want to look at Jesus's apostle Paul as he tells the Corinthians how to judge uh, their church. I want to first look at the tolerance of Corinth and I put tolerance in scare quotes. Those are, you know, air quotes. I like to call them scare quotes. The reason why is because this was not tolerance at all. It was actually something completely evil and immoral. As the world calls tolerance, as we're going to see, that is not what tolerance is. It actually is apathy and amorality, a lack of any sort of morality. 
I want to move from there to Paul's continued use of this imagery of an exodus from the world. Um, If you were listening during the reading, Paul talks about getting rid of leaven, and then he says something about Passover. And unless you know the context of what he's talking about, it's easy to miss what he's saying. But actually, what I believe Paul is doing is he's making a statement to the Corinthian church that they are a group of people who, through Christ and through the gospel, have left the ways of the world, and that they're called to stay on and persist in their journey through the wilderness unto even going into the promised land. And then finally, I want to look at these as an example of the nature and character of Jesus Christ, that he is a Lord and Savior, but he is not just a Lord and Savior. He is a shepherd, a defender, and a mighty warrior, and he is protecting his bride and his people. So Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for tolerating known and unrepentant sin in one of her members. After dealing with a number of problems in the Corinthian church, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, factions, wars, uh, spiritual wars, doctrinal wars, opposition against spiritual authority, even Paul himself and the other leaders who established the Corinthians, he goes on to finally bring it up in another issue. He says, you're sick, you're sick, you're sick for four chapters, and then we get to chapter five, and then he says, and to top it all off, here's what's going on among you. You think you're so pure, you think you're excellent, you think you have no need of import, Im- input from the other apostles, and yet you have fallen away from the faith, and you've, you've begun to tolerate things that will destroy you. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported among you. He's basically saying that there is this controversy of tolerating this man has been so disastrous to the witness of Corinth that people have left Corinth whether they're missionaries, apostles, or other Christians just traveling through, and word has spread, and it's gotten back to Paul. It's been so bad. You know, this is kind of like when, you, you know, you do something wrong as a child. If it's not too bad, you might get a spanking or a slight discipline from mom, but if it rises to a certain occasion, guess what? Wait till your dad gets home, right? This is what's gone on in the Corinthian church. This sin has arisen. It's caused such a disaster in the Corinthian church that their lampstand has been, it's been changed to a different color. It's gone out almost. It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality. He's saying this sort of behavior shouldn't even be named. It shouldn't even be something that is tolerated in a Christian church. He says, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. This sort of behavior, even in the Roman Empire, which if you know anything about Greek Hellenism, was extremely ungodly. They, they tolerated all forms of sexual immorality that are emerging even again today. Pederasty, the taking of children or young boys or young girls for sexual pleasure of adults. Uh, terrible things, the permission of, uh, for homosexual relationships or what we might call you know, gay or lesbian relationships today. This was all pretty much fair game in the pagan culture around them at the time. And Paul says, but even the Gentiles don't let this happen. That is, it's, it's so wrong that even their calloused compass and their calloused uh, subconscious does not let them tolerate this as a society. He's basically saying, you've gone to a level that not even the world would put up with And verse 2 says, and you are proud. 
That is to say that this controversy was not really a controversy inside Corinth any longer. They had made peace with the fact that they were going to tolerate this sort of behavior. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So this man took his father's wife. Now, I don't know if this was his mother. More than likely, it was a remarried wife. That is, the, the father had this son, and then he married someone else, and now this son has taken that woman who he's remarried. Nevertheless, if you read Leviticus 16, this is describing the sort of thing for which the people were expelled out of the land. That is, the Canaanites were doing these sorts of things, and that's why God threw them out of the land by the Jews or by the Israelites. The Corinthians' arrogance, therefore, is manifest in a boasting that they can handle it. There is some sort of spiritual pride going on in Corinth where they think, oh, this isn't really that big of a deal. And Paul doesn't give us a ton of knowledge, but he does give us some insight into what their thought process would have been. They thought that they could have tolerated this behavior. Perhaps they believed it that as a self-proclaimed Christian, this person was still under grace. This is a doctrine that is extremely prevalent today. You know, I can do whatever and Jesus will forgive me. Brothers and sisters, if you think that way about the temptations you face or excuse your sins after the fact saying, well, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm a Christian and I can ask for forgiveness later, that is spiritual cancer and suicide. That is insanity. And yet it's possible that this is what the Corinthians thought. They thought, well, the blood of Jesus is so powerful that anyone can do any sort of thing and Christ will still redeem them. God will still forgive them. But this is not how we are to learn Christ, as Paul says later in the other Corinthian letter. Perhaps they believed that this activity was not even a sin. There was a doctrine going around in the first century that there was a difference between physical things and spiritual things. And physical things were lowly and base and not very important. And spiritual things were what mattered. This, this doctrine took on a form and it would later be known as Gnosticism. But it's a subtle heresy that swept into the church and many of the New Testament epistles are dealing with that specific heresy. Basically, it says this, you know, drunkenness or sexual immorality or stealing things, all of that's just the material world. And we know that the material world isn't matter, isn't what matters. It matters really what you're doing in spiritual things, like worship services or prayer or, you know, reading your Bible. And the Gnostics actually went to weird places where they would try to communicate with angels and receive secret knowledge. That's what Gnosticism means. It means secret gnosis, like secret revelations of doctrine that come outside of the church and her teachings and the scriptures, this other revelation that you can launch to from Christianity. That, that religion is often, uh, you know, even arising again today. Gnosticism is alive and well, unfortunately. It's possible that they believed one of these two things, that he could either get grace or he was not in any danger. He was in a state of forgiveness or that it didn't really matter what you do with the body. All it matters is what you do in your heart. Have you ever heard someone say this today? This is a very common uh, rebuttal to any sort of um, teaching of, you know, putting out real morality in your life is, well, God knows my heart. Have you ever heard that phrase? God knows my heart. 
That's a terrifying reality. If God really knows your heart, that should cause you to fear and tremble. Because what Jesus taught about our hearts is that they were filled with all sorts of evil. And from our hearts come out jealousies and adulteries and envies and murders and gossips. Everything that is in your heart, is that's the problem. When Jesus was talking about the sins that, you know, cutting things off, the reason he used the eye and the hand is they're icons of behaviors. They're icons of lust. They're icons of malice. They're icons of, of stealing. But really what you need cut out isn't your eye or your hand. You need cut out your heart. You need a new heart. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Nevertheless, we don't know exactly what they meant, but we know that this iniquity was defiling the whole camp. This is another doctrine that is extremely prevalent today. What does it matter? This is private behavior that no one knows about, and it doesn't affect anybody. The problem is the scriptures present a a view of humanity in which we are connected to one another. We're told to visit those in prison because we're to remember that we too are in the body. It's, our empathy is based on the fact that we're both human beings and that we're involved in this community of Christ. And so the scriptures present a view over and over again that private sins have public ramifications. That private heresies or private sexual sin or private envy, jealousy, gossip, embezzlement All of those things done in secret are always exposed in the public. This is is what happens over and over again. If you remember in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites are going up to attack the city of Ai, Ai, uh, they are absolutely slaughtered. They, They just, they can't, you know, they can't get any progress against Ai. A whole bunch of them die. And the Lord tells Joshua and the other leaders to come back to the camp and basically cast lots to find the guy who's coveted some of the gold that he should have burnt. And all of the nation of Israel suffers because of this sin of one man, and he he coveted this gold and kept it in his tent. And what, what takes place after it? All those who coveted the gold, him and his family, because his family was in on it, they are all put to death. The reason why is because God commanded them, do not take anything of the Canaanites lest you eventually become like them. And indeed, that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. So Paul's saying that this iniquity, you're proud of the fact that you're tolerating this, but this is like hugging cancer. This is like being in love with poison. It is going to destroy the entire Corinthian church. He condemns them, and it reveals this temptation that in every age, as we looked at these examples, every age has its temptations. Every age or zeitgeist or culture that emerges in time has its chief love of sins, and some are exalted in the culture more than others. In the Roman culture, they loved war, sex, uh, greed, and power. And guess what? In today's culture, we love Uh, sex, love, greed, and power. It's the exact same thing with slightly different flavors. Each age has its own temptations, and in each age, the church faces the temptation to compromise either doctrine or purity in exchange for some sort of favor. What What is the temptation facing the church today? It is the temptation to let go of our limits or rules on certain forms of morality, especially sexual morality, in order to earn relevance 
some sort of social currency by which we might gain a hearing or become more popular in the culture. These, these are what the so-called friends of the church are calling for, an open acceptance of sodomy and transgenderism, both of which are denials of the image of God the goodness of creation, and even the incarnation itself, and who God has made people to be, male and female. The church faces this temptation today, but as Paul warned the Corinthians, and we might do well to hear, acceptance of sin breeds sin. Therefore, he commands them to expel that man. He says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Isn't that interesting language? When you're all together and my spirit's with you and the Lord Jesus's power is present. Do you think that that's what happens during church services on the Lord's day? Brothers and sisters, that is what happens during church services on the Lord's day. There is something special and unique about gathering together as saints, as a community, to interact with the Lord by his spirit, to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. As we just heard in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is among us. And we would do well to emphasize that fact that the Lord himself is present to his people. As precious and wonderful as the sacraments are in participation in worship and a sense of God's presence, we must never forget that by the Spirit, the Lord Christ is among his people, even today as we speak. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? If you ever take yeast and put it in dough and then you mix around the yeast, there's no way to get the individual yeasts back out of the dough. I don't know if you've ever baked bread. I would love you to come over to my house. We'll bake bread together, and I'll show you the difference between a loaf without yeast and a loaf with yeast. In three hours, it can more than double. It's amazing. God's creation is beautiful. What Paul's saying is you take some yeast and you throw it in the dough mixture, it's all going to be leavened. It's all going to be infected, if you will, with that yeast. It will work its way through the bread completely. So, like the removal of cancer or the cutting off of gangrene, expelling those who are engaged in unrepentant, high-handed sin. What do I mean by that? Unrepentant, high-handed sin. That is sin which is acknowledged to be sin by the individual, or they are unwilling to acknowledge it as sin. Or, what, I, what do I mean by high-handed? I mean it's done with full knowledge. That is, uh, sins against the things which God deems holy and that person knows full well right from wrong. That is what Paul is discussing here. Removal of these people is the only safe step for the body. Paul goes on to refer to this in Romans 12, talking about the people as a body. And if you've ever, I've used this imagery a few times because I think it's really effective. Um, If you've ever seen gangrene or any sort of infection, which is like a necrosis of flesh, It's very important. The doctors will make it very clear to you that I have to take the toe. You can't have your foot. It will. If if I let you have this foot, you will not be here a year from now or or six months from now. Because what happens is the body keeps trying to fix that part of the body, the the dead toe or the frostbitten finger, and 
over time, what happens is the necrosis begins to get in the blood supply, and then the blood supply takes that poison and that dead flesh, and it brings it to the heart, and then the heart pumps it everywhere, and then you're, you're, you're done for. It's really over at that point. Gangrene left untreated will often kill a person. This is what Paul's imagery is, that there's a body and it needs to be protected. Paul's use of the imagery of the leaven, however, in this example, is a deliberate thing. Remember, I talked about him using the, the imagery of the leaven, and then he mentions the Passover. That's not two different things. That's the exact same thing. And he uses this imagery as a deliberate reference to the Passover meal that the Israelites had as they were leaving Egypt. This is why the discipline that he's calling them to command uh, to, to execute is actually in step with the gospel. It's a part of the gospel and the claims of the gospel. When the Israelites were about to leave the nation of Egypt, God gave them a commandment to eat the Passover lamb, having burned it with fire, having cut it, having slain it, having roasted it, and then he commanded them to eat that Passover lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why? Because unleavened bread doesn't have fullness in it. It's made quick. It's made in, in urgency, why are they supposed to not use leavening? It's because they have to eat the meal right away. They don't have time for the bread to rise. They have to eat that meal that night because if they don't leave Egypt, they'll be destroyed along with it. And the bitter herbs speak about the nature of what God's about to do in this Passover meal. And so as a continual reminder, even as he's giving them the initial commandment of what they're going to do that night, when the angel of the Lord passes over Egypt, he goes ahead and says, by the way, this is going to be a continual reminder in your nation that this is going to be a festival by which you remember your cultural identity. That is, for the Israelites, they were really given birth so to speak, as a nation during the night of Passover. God tells them that they are to abstain during this feast from leavened bread. The entire seven days of the feast of Passover, they are not supposed to eat leavened bread. And those who do eat leavened bread, coincidence I think not, will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. You see what Paul's saying here? He's saying this leaven that you're engaging with, you have to cut that person off. Why? Because you're Israel. Why does Paul use this imagery? Does he want the Corinthians to throw away their sourdough starters? Is Paul concerned with bread? He's not concerned with bread. Why does he use this imagery? He uses this imagery because these things were shadows of a substance which was to be revealed, and that now for these Corinthian Christians who've heard the message of the gospel after the coming of Christ in the flesh, that substance has been revealed to them. It's no longer about bread and killing a lamb because he goes on to say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What he's doing is he's saying, Corinthians, you are Israelites, and you're not supposed to be leaving Egypt. You're supposed to be leaving the world's system and its ways. He then says in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. He's saying your toleration of this infectious sin is going against your reality as a holy people. We confess in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy, Catholic, or universal, and apostolic church. One church exists, and she is holy. 
and she is in step and in conversation with the church throughout the ages. That's what Catholic means. And she is apostolic. She holds to the teaching laid down by the apostles and Christ himself. That is who the church is. He says that you might be in reality, that you might be in experience what you really are truthfully that you are a pure people. For Christ, our, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Wait a second. I thought Paul in another letter said, some people celebrate days and other people have all days alike. What's he doing here? Is Paul saying that the Corinthians have to go to observing the Messianic feasts in order to be Christians? He's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that people who have come into Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, have entered into rest. They've entered into the promised land. They've been established in the land, and they ought to keep the festivals, so to speak. He's saying, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with, and then if he was talking about real bread, he would go on to say, like, bread with leavening. But look at what he says. He says, not with the old bread leavened with malice. Just so you know, you can't, Use malice to leaven a loaf. He's saying we cannot be infected by malice and wickedness or malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These Corinthians, therefore, who were never in Egypt and are not part of the cultural nation of Israel, have become part of, as Paul says in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. They have become the fulfillment of the shadow of the national Israel, what it was intended to be in its fullness. So how does Paul call them to celebrate the festival? Well, he calls them to realize that they have received the substance of which these shadows spoke. During the Exodus, each family in Israel killed a lamb, and Paul says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So by the blood of Christ being applied to their hearts, these Corinthians have escaped the judgment of God which was coming on the whole world. That's what John 3 talks about right after verse 16. The world is already condemned. The Israelites who were in the nation of Egypt at the time were under the threat of this angel who was going to come and slay the firstborn. And God said, if you kill this lamb and put its blood upon the lintels, the doorposts of your house, the angel will pass over your house. That's where the word Passover comes from. And if they did not, the angel would not pass over. What Paul is saying is, Christ is our way of escape against the judgment which is coming on the entire world, not just the nation of Egypt. Paul, therefore, calls these Corinthians to remember how they left the world by the blood of Christ. Later on, he says, I told you not to engage with anyone who is sexually immoral, sexually immoral in the world. What I'm saying is not that he's telling them to leave the physical world. He's telling them to leave the ways of the world. Hopefully that's really clear. They're going on a journey. They're going through a wilderness. They're currently traveling towards the expectant hope of a promised land. And he wants them to make it. He wants them to get into the promised land. Paul's command, therefore, to cleanse out the leaven is a reprise. It's a, it's a repeating of Christ's commands, and Christ himself commanded his followers. He said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Paul then goes on and he says, look out for the leaven of malice and wickedness or malice and evil. Christ teaches and Paul reminds them to watch over their hearts. 
So the leaven of malice I take to be any teaching or spirit stirring up division and destroying the peace and holiness of the church. And seen in the context of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, that's probably exactly what Paul is talking about. There's so much strife going on in in the church at Corinth that he's saying this has infected all of you. He's, he's kind of dealing with peripheral issues and then he gets to chapter five and he's saying, you know, this might've been where it all started. You, you've, you've tolerated this and it's been spreading through the dough. I take the leaven of evil or the leaven of wickedness to be any teaching or spirit which attempts to persuade Christians, indeed the whole church, to persist in sin and excuses delayed repentance. What do I mean by this? It is a common thing, a common unwritten doctrine in today's church to embrace what is so-called, they use the term brokenness. Have you ever heard this term before? If you ever read certain Christian magazines or engage with certain Christian material, especially aimed at restoring people who've had traumatic experiences, this word is their touchstone. They will emphasize the ongoing brokenness and weakness of a Christian to the degree that it becomes a subtle temptation in the heart to excuse unrepentant sin. I can't overcome this. I'm just a human. I can't overcome this sin until I'm married. I can't overcome this sin because I'm married. I can't overcome this sin until I have enough money and then I'll be able to do that. Or I need to get other people to help me become more mature and once I become mature, then I'll stop this. Brothers and sisters, Christ is your sanctification and he has been sacrificed. He is our Passover lamb. By him, we have made an escape from the world. This is what the vows of baptism actually tell us. Do you renounce Satan and all of his ways? One of the ways of Satan is convincing you that Christ is not able to sanctify you, that you're still under the infectious corruption of ongoing, unrepentant flesh. But we're told over and over again in the New Testament, consider yourself as dead to sin. Put off the old self with its ways. Put on the new self. We're told to be proactive in renouncing sin and sinful ways. We're told to embrace our new identity as Christ. Paul says, be a new lump as you are. Does that make sense? He says, I want you to start acting as a church as you already are. You've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Don't live like you're unholy. I take the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth to be a quality of speaking the truth in love so that the church is built up. What happens when you don't speak the truth? Ongoing sin, error persists. That's part of what sermons are for. They are to correct error as much as they are to encourage zeal and holiness. Sermons are to show the beauty of Christ and to warn against the dangers of not persisting in sanctification. If you were here during our time through the book of Hebrews, you'll remember those messages quite well. There are real warnings and they should be preached. Christians, though still weak and prone to temptation, should consider themselves as dead to the world and crucified to the world by the cross of Christ. Paul in Galatians 6, he talks about this, that the world's been crucified. I, I think I might be wrong in that reference. No, I think it is. It's, it's that one. Uh, that the world has been crucified to him and by the cross of Christ, him to the world. That is, Paul's saying, I can't operate in the world anymore. Have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? What happens when Neo finally realizes what's going on around him? He can't ever go back. He can never go back. 
he's given an option, red pill, blue pill. He takes the red pill. The imagery is ridiculous, but it's, it's, it's accurate. What Paul's saying is, I now understand that the world is under the control of the evil one, and I've been crucified with Christ, and I've been raised with Christ, and I'm hoping that one day again I'll be raised with Christ. Those who are in Christ have become new creations and are alive again. Therefore, Christians should forsake their former, former sinful ways and be renewed in Christ by the Spirit of God. Every ounce of the grace of God has been applied to you. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. That is, by our union with Christ, we have ample am- ammo or ammunition to fight this battle. We will not run out of the grace of God. Therefore, we should forsake the world. So, far from being judgmental, Christ teaches these things, including inspiring Paul to write this letter to the Corinthians, to be gracious and merciful against those who would harm his people. That is, the judgment of Christ to protect his flock is the same as the judgment of Christ to condemn and remove the wolf. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Christ himself taught his followers to judge with equity and righteousness as their standard. Verse 27 of John 7, or 24 of John 7, do not judge by appearances. Don't judge by what a person looks like. Don't judge by how nicely their clothing is. Do not judge them because they are black. Do not judge them because they are white. Do not judge them because they are Latino. Do not presume that you can know by vision alone. Do not judge by what you hear, but judge with right judgment. Jesus commands the Pharisees who are attacking him in John 7 to stop judging the wrong way and to judge the right way. What does it mean to judge? It means to make a moral evaluation. Two weeks ago when we were talking about Genesis 1, we talked about how each progressive day God is beautifying and glorifying the world. God does something and then he comes and he looks and God saw and he said, it is good. If it wasn't good, he wouldn't have said that. God's judgment, his moral declaration of what he saw, what he evaluated, is done after each day to teach us what is right and wrong, distinguishing good from evil. God is showing Adam and Eve through his created order, these are good things. This is my good world. That's what we saw two weeks ago. We ought to judge, therefore, not with our circumstantial judgment, not with our opinions of who people are without knowing them. We are to judge them based on right judgments. Everyone always is in the process of judging. You're probably judging this sermon right now if you didn't notice. It is inescapable to make judgments. It is a part of living. It's a part of reality. From time to time, we ourselves will fail to rule over our own hearts. The book of Proverbs tells us to keep our hearts, for from our hearts stream all the issues or ways of life or circumstances of life. If we do not judge our hearts, we, time to time, as Christians, fall under the judgments of God. We are to do this by the word of God and trusting in the spirit of God, according to his scriptures. And so when we fall under judgment, we ought not to reject that judgment. What do I mean by that judgment? I mean from time to time, even Christians are disciplined by God. And they are disciplined often by him directly, sometimes through the church, 
sometimes through circumstances, sometimes through the rebuke of a brother or sister, or graciously, God is often willing to do it by the voice of the Spirit or the Word of God. And Hebrews tells us that this discipline from the Father is actually a proof of the validity of our sonship. That is, if you are a Christian and you never feel any sort of uh, sorrow for your sin, or you just seem to always get away with it and it never comes to light, and you're walking in darkness and you think, well, you know, that's just really proof that God loves me. According to the book of Hebrews, it's actually cause for grave concern that from time to time you ought to be getting caught in your sin that you ought to be rebuked in your sin, that you ought to feel sorrow and to mourn over your sin. Nevertheless, God is going to judge his children. Verse, uh, 11, or, sorry, verse 31 and 32 of this same letter, Paul goes on to say why some of them have died because they've handled communion in the wrong spirit. He goes on to say in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Isn't this amazing? That if by the means of God's grace, by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, if we rule over our hearts, we will not face judgment from God. That is to say, if we use the tools and warnings that God has given in His Word, and we use them appropriately, having all confidence in His love, having all confidence that He will receive us and and all willingness to repent from known sin and to ask God to cleanse us from unknown sin, that he will warmly receive us. Nevertheless, he goes on to give a promise. If we judge ourselves in this way, we will not be judged. What a wonderful promise. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Isn't that amazing? Christ doesn't let his sheep just wander out out of the pens. He is going to go and get them. He leaves the 99 to chase down the one. Right? When you wander, he's willing and able and eager to go bring you back. And he often has to snatch you by the, the collar when he does it. Have you ever seen like a, a mom cat or like a mom dog when they go and snatch up one of the pups? It's not a pretty sight, but it really it's actually really the only loving thing. So Nevertheless, these judgments, again, they are merciful and they're gracious because they wake us from folly and turn us back to true devotion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm concerned that you've strayed from a pure and simple devotion to Christ. That is, our religion is really not that complicated. It's all about love to God with a pure conscience. And that's what Paul's aiming to restore the Corinthians to. Discipline, therefore, teaches us that our Lord is unwilling for his bride to be defiled. He is unwilling to let his bride be assailed by attackers and those who would seek to malign her or to even stain her garments. And although church discipline is a difficult and heartbreaking step, it shows us the glory of Christ in the protection of his flock. And here's where we're going to end here in just a second. Just as he laid down his life to purchase his flock, so also he defends it against wolves in sheep's clothing. We talked about this back at the end of our time of Easter, that Jesus is a good and true shepherd. Discipline reminds us, therefore, of our Lord's love, for he cares for the flock. Christ is neither ambivalent. He's not apathetic to the plight of his people. When you hear circumstances around the world, Christians are being murdered in this country, Christians are being persecuted in this country, Christ sees and he knows 
and in his sovereignty, he is delaying judgment against those who would attack his bride. I saw the most terrifying and, and sad video of this church in, I think it was South Korea. Um, no, it was, it was in North Korea. And their church was attacked by the police of the city. It was torn to the ground because they had established an illegal house and, and set up a church. And it was ripped apart brick by brick, two by four by two by four. And these Christians are just as precious to Christ as you or I. Christ sees and he knows and he will judge. Christ is not ambivalent to the plight of his people, though often he withholds judgment for a time in order to be extremely merciful and gracious. And Christ is not unable to see the danger which comes against us. He sees, he knows. One of my favorite worship songs that came out of the International House of Prayer is this song about the glorious judgment of Christ at the end of the ages. And... Um, as post-millennial as I am, I do believe Jesus will really judge the nations. And the chorus goes like this. Every deep and hidden thing that you thought that he didn't see, he sees and he knows and he's coming to judge. When you see the government rallying against, railing against the Christians in our country, do not despair. God is sovereign. God is protecting his people. This is a small microcosm of what God does in sanctifying and purifying his people. He is going to war, so to speak, with, for his people. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us a great love of Jesus Christ, that with the saints in the book of Revelation, we might be able to sing without any ounce of reservation in our hearts that all of your judgments are righteous and true. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be a people so in love with grace and so eager to share the free offer of repentance by the blood of Christ, that all of our speaking of judgment would be heard in the right context. Lord, we thank you that you have not allowed us to persist in our rebellion, but by your warning and by your love and mercy, you have called us from sin, from the serving of idols to a true faith, to worship the true God in honesty and sincerity. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to mourn and to grieve this loss. And yet at the same time, Lord, we ask that you would allow us, each every one of us, to not be offended, but to, to celebrate your zeal for the purity of your people. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for defending your flock, both in the ages past and even today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.